call? Greg, thank you. I need to begin with a confession. <laughs> I've been trying to cover too much material. <laughs> and some of you emailed me. <laughs> okay. I've been chastised. Uh, it is such good stuff. It's just hard to trim it and let it hit the floor. Okay. This is 50 slides shorter than last week. Okay. Uh, uh, today what we want to do is, uh, it kind of goes with the, the song we just heard, kind of shine a light into a dark area. Um, and if you're like my mother was, my mother would just as soon not look where the dark things are, you know. Uh, so it's, it would have been real easy as we go through the history of Israel not to have had this lesson because it's horrific. It's like the Holocaust. Um, the Holocaust is not pretty, but it is something we need to know about. And in this case, I would say, uh, if we're going to understand Israel's history, very much so. Uh, the goal is not to be morbid, but the goal is, is very specific. We want to understand what happens after this. And this event is so critical for understanding that we literally cannot leapfrog over it. So today we're going to take a look at a, at a dark period in the history of Israel. Uh, it provides and begins to unlock not only what will subsequently be known as Judaism, but it also is going to unlock as aspects of our own faith as Christians because it is out of this new environment that our faith will come. And so we're going to begin to see some of the things that, that give shape to who Jesus was. Uh, from the ashes of the destruction, which is what we're looking at today, arises a world. It is a fundamentally new and different world, different from what went before. I mean, it's a watershed. Before, Israel. After, Judaism. What's in between is the destruction and what we'll look at next week, the exile. So this is the, what we're beginning to see the foundations of is the world that gave us Jesus, that gave us Paul, that gave us the early Christians, and that environment out of which our faith emerges. Um, we can summarize everything we've done so far in one slide. Uh, after arriving in the Promised Land, Israel existed as an independent entity for about six centuries. First, as a loose confederation of tribes. Remember, remember Joshua and Judges, you know? Uh, the Judges were always over one tribe. They never worked together. They never coordinated, which is part of their problem. So their enemies found it very easy to overwhelm them. And so what did they want? What was the, what did they want to so solve that? A king. And they got Saul, not the best start. <laughs> then they got David, still not perfect. And then they got Solomon. Solomon had issues and the kingdom splits. And then um, we have the two states that exist side by side for a while. At the beginning of 6th century B.C., or right at 600, uh, things change almost overnight. We're going to go from what is considered to be the greatest king since David, which is the king Josiah, to the nation of, of Judah being obliterated off the face of the earth in 15 years. So we go from the greatest to the depths almost overnight. And that's because uh, Jos uh, Josiah dies in 610. And a guy named Nebuchadnezzar founds a new empire called the Babylonian Empire in 605. And by 596, Jerusalem has been taken, and even actually before that. So very, very quickly, we're going to have three attacks. Uh, they're each different, but the end result will be the nation of Israel is, in fact, no more. Now, for those of you who like archaeology, we've arrived, okay? This is, this is the, the period of bounty. 
The earlier periods, not so much. Here, it's just, it's just one. The Babylonians kept meticulous records, and they kept them on clay tablets. And how long does a clay tablet last? Forever, okay? And we actually have those, so we'll be consulting those. We're lucky because even in the Bible, we've got two independent histories of what's going on. The first one is the, is the end of the Deuteronomic history, 2 Kings, which is the one we're going to follow because it's the most detailed. Uh, you've got a parallel one that's over uh, called 2 Chronicles. Uh, we may, the next few weeks, look at a little bit of this, but not much. We'll probably stay with Kings. Um, we also have two eyewitnesses. Did you know that? We have two eyewitnesses who actually lived through these events, who actually wrote about them. The first is a guy named Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a priest who's in Jerusalem, and he is captured in the first attack. He's hauled off into Babylon, where he lives the rest of his life, and it's there in Babylon, beside a river, that God calls him to be a prophet. So one of our eyewitnesses gives us the perspective of being with the exiles over there, and that happens in 597. But he's writing for probably close to the next 40 years. We have the prophet Jeremiah, who is not taken, because he is seen as being loyal to Babylon and therefore a traitor to his own nation. And so he stays there. And he actually lives through the entire thing. He's an active prophet. He lives through the first attack. He lives through the second attack. He lives through the third attack and then is hauled off into Egypt where he vanishes. And he writes about all of it. So we're lucky to have Jeremiah. Uh, the book of Jeremiah is incredibly important. We have, and this is one of them, we have multiple Babylonian documents which survive and have been uncovered and have been translated so we can consult them. So a lot of what's going on here, we actually can read Kings and then we can flip over to the Babylonian Chronicle and, and in fact we know on every instance where they're parallel, Kings is confirmed by what's in the Babylonian Chronicle. So we have rock solid archaeological grounding in this. We have other archaeological evidence that we will consult from time to time. Today, it's mostly the Babylonian accounts. Second Kings is going to be the primary thing we're going to look at for the, the narrative, the story, to narrate the events. And then Jeremiah is going to be our primary eyewitness that will, so we'll look at Kings and we'll say, what does Jeremiah say about that? And then what does the archaeology say about that? And so this morning, those three will be talking together. Uh, there's going to be three attacks. So we're going to start with the first one, and we start in 2 Kings 24. Uh, now we've got two kings here, one's the son of the other, and in the alphabet, which comes first, M or N? <laughs> Trick question. <laughs> M before N. So Jehoiakim will become before Jehoiakim. That's just, somebody taught me that, it actually works. During, during Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land. Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. The mighty, we'll see a map in just a second, but the mighty Babylonian Empire comes into existence. 605, it marches down, goes all the way into Egypt. You know, uh, Judah's like an armadillo on I-35. It just gets, you know, taken out. The king submits, agrees, and then something happens. And they turned and rebelled against him. So for three years, Judah is a loyal vassal of the empire. And then... Probably because there's a new pharaoh in Egypt who's feeling his oats and wants to negotiate a little treaty. Treaty, you back me, I'll back you. Uh, you rebel against Babylon, I rebel against Babylon. We'll be independent. You'll like that. Actually, it turned out to be very bad advice. Jehoiakim slept with his ancestors. Now get this: 
he rebels and dies before the army even gets there. So guess who gets to deal with the consequences of his actions? His son, okay? His son Jehoiakim succeeded him. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he began to reign. Get this, he reigned three months. It's about the time it takes to march from Babylon to Jerusalem, okay? King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to the city while his servants were besieging it. He sends his army ahead, then he comes. King Jehoiakim, 18-year-old teenage son of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon. That's the smartest thing that kid ever did, okay? He will live for another 50 years in Babylon, uh, and he'll be taken care of. We have the records of that. The king of Babylon carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord. Did he take the Ark of the Covenant? Looked at that last week. Probably it's already gone. At, at least it's, it's, Jeremiah says it's irrelevant anyway. Uh, once you build the temple, you don't need the Ark because everything's housed there. But if it's not gone before, what's interesting is it's not mentioned here and it's not mentioned coming back, which probably means it's already gone. He cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord. Got a nice visual? Smelting it down, making bars of whatever, okay? Which King Solomon of Israel had made. He carried away all Jerusalem. Now that sounds like he took the whole city, doesn't it? Just carried them all away. Well, read carefully. All the officials, all the warriors, 10,000 captives, all the artisans and the smiths. So who is he just carried away? The elites, the leaders, the people who run the nation. Also, the people who revolted against him. Okay, and we'll see this, this language come out more and more. He's not going to mess with Joe Blow Farmer out in the field. That's not his concern, okay? Uh, no one remained except the poorest people of the land. In the ancient world, this is the tax base. People don't have gold. People don't have silver. So if you're going to tax people, what are you going to get? Crops. What's the worst thing you could ever do? Take all the people off the land, okay? Besides, they didn't rebel against you in the first place. So you leave those people there. The king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000. The artisans, the smiths, 1,000. All of them strong and fit for war. So he, what he's doing is he's neutralizing the threat. Anybody who might be a threat to him, an elite who is of the age and the strength that they can uh, you know, pose the threat, he takes them out of play. The king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king of his, in his place, changed his name to Zedekiah. So this is uh, an uncle of the king, which means he's of the royal family of David. So we still have now a royal uh, heir of David on the throne, on the Davidic throne, but he's a puppet of who? Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, he's a puppet king. This is what the Babylonian Empire looked like. Ignore the darker green. Uh, that's just a period of time. Um, that's also basically the same area that the Assyrian Empire had. Babylon takes Assyria out. Babylon takes the empire over. Later, the Greeks will take, uh, the Persians will take this out, and then they'll go further east a long way, and then uh, Greece will take that out and go even further east, winding up in India. Okay. First attack of three. 598, Jehoiakim rebels against Babylon. He dies before Babylon army arrived. Uh, his death saves the city, but his son and the leaders are going to pay the price for the decision that he has made. We got 10,000 of the elites are being deported to Babylon, including Jehoiakim's son, uh, the new king. But the city, 
and the temple are spared. And there's not one word about any combat. The king surrenders when the army's still out. That's a smart move in the ancient world, okay? So nobody dies from arrows or swords. You just got some people taken away. 10,000 are taken into exile, and that sounds like a lot until you realize that the archaeological estimates are the population of Judah was somewhere between 200,000 and 400,000, okay? That includes the people of the land, the people in Jerusalem, and the, the outlying cities. Um, the only ones who are taken are the elites in Jerusalem at this point. He just decapitates, Nebuchadnezzar decapitates the leadership that has rebelled against him. Everything else stays intact. Uh, Jeremiah is an eyewitness. Jeremiah tells us that the number, now Kings is written later, Jeremiah is an eyewitness. Jeremiah says not 10,000 people were taken into exile, but actually a much smaller number, about 3,000 or less than 1% of the population. So did all of Judah go into exile? No. Very, very, very small. Now, if this is your people and you're an elite, did everybody go into exile? It's like asking a junior high girl, you know, if we're, if we're two best friends in the world or not there, nobody's here, you know. Uh, it's that kind of perspective. So the broad strokes of the attack have actually been confirmed by something called the Babylonian Chronicles, which have been found, have been translated. Uh, by the way, I believe this is in the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. Barbara and I went to Berlin, and we didn't see this. Darn, I have to go back now. Year 7. It says, year 7 of Nebuchadnezzar's reign is the king. It's just the record. The king encamped against the city of Judah in the second of Adar, one of their months. Uh, he captured the city, and he seized its king. Exactly what we're told in the book of Kings. A king of his own choice, he appointed there. Who would be? Zedekiah. He took heavy tribute, and by the way, in the ancient world, tribute would include wealth and people. Okay, people are wealth. Uh, remember, he took all the artisans, those are, you know, and, and the literate people and stuff. These are people that are very, very valuable, you know, and carried it off to Babylon. So in broad strokes, the Babylonian Chronicle confirms that what's in for, uh, Second Kings, in fact, is the same. The Babylonian Tablets also, we found a couple others that have some really interesting stuff. One is it confirms... And we have records of the Babylonian king feeding the Judean king in Babylon. Did you know that? That's an interesting little deal. Uh, this is a different one. This is it. List the rations delivered to the captives. Now, this lists captives of all kinds of nations, but there's one paragraph where it starts talking about uh, the Judean king. Calls him Jehoiakim. He is called the king of Judah, and it mentions his five sons that are there with him. So this is from the Chronicle at the Pergamon Museum. Ten silla, I have no idea. How big is a silla? Anybody know? Cup. Ten cups, okay. Ten cups of oil to the king of Judah, Joachim. Okay. Two and a half silla of oil to the offspring of Judah's king. Four silla for the eight men of Judah. So he's apparently got some of his counselors, some of his advisors with him. Ten silla to da -da 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 -da, the son of Judah's king. Probably the heir apparent. Two and a half silla to the five sons of of the Judean king. So this is a, a, a bureaucrat keeping records of where the supplies go and happens to confirm to us that in Babylon, the Babylonians kept the king and his family alive. Which would be important, why? If you believe in the Davidic kingship, this opens the possibility, could a Davidic king come back? 
opens that possibility. Uh, basically, we confirm 2 Kings 24 there. Chronicle also mentions the release of Jehoiakim from prison 27 years later. Now, how old was he when he was captured? Well, he became king when he was 18. I think he, he left immediately. So he's now in his 50s. What happens, and this happened a lot in the Oshawa, is when one emperor dies and a new emperor comes to power, what's the first thing they do? Erase all the images of the previous administration and wipe out their policies. And if there's anybody that the previous king had imprisoned, what do you do with them? You release them. Now, he stays in Babylon, uh, but we actually have that. And that's actually confirming what the second Kings also says. So we got Jehoiakim's uncle Zedekiah appointed king of Nebuchadnezzar. So he's left in Jerusalem. Not all of the elites are taken away because there's some still people running the, the, the country. By the way, Zedekiah is the last king of Israel. From now on, there will be another country ruling. And if another country is ruling, do they want an Israelite king? You might have by the time of Herod with the Romans, you've got King Herod, but he's strictly limited in his power. Okay, 590, only seven years later, Zedekiah also rebels against Babylon, probably because the Egyptians are stirring things up again, making promises. This time, they're not so lucky. The, the results are catastrophic. It is not just that we're going to take a few of the elites away. The steamroller called the Babylonian army is going to come, and it's going to do what it does with it. So 2 Kings gives us our best account of this passage what happens Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon and in the ninth year of his reign the ninth year of uh, Zedekiah's reign so the city was besieged until the 11th year of King Zedekiah how long is the siege how many of you remember Stalingrad Stalingrad was sieged for a little over a year what was it like in Stalingrad by the end yeah cannibalism all kinds of stuff uh, digging up corpses eating it I just it's horrendous uh, so you've got a city that nothing gets in and out for two years. So things are horrific. Um, uh, the book of Lamentations will give you the details. We're not going to go there today. In the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine became so severe in the city, this is interesting, that there was no food for people of the land. The elites are still eating. The people of the land, the common people who fled in front of the Babylonian army, and have swelled the population of Jerusalem, which al always happens in these situations. Uh, a lot of people have fled in Syria, either out of the country or to Damascus, if they support the government. Uh, so there's no food for them. Then a breach was made in the city wall. The king and all of his soldiers fled, just leaving the people to kind of fend for themselves. I, we've had that happen before, too. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, overtook him on the plains of Jericho, so they've come down toward the Jordan Valley. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out the eyes of Zedekiah. So it's the last thing he sees is, is his sons being killed. They bound him in fetters, took him off to Babylon. Now we got two kings of Judah in Babylon. The first, who's in good health, being taken care of, and the second, who we never hear of again. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar burned the house of the Lord so the temple's burned burns the king's house that would be the palace palace of the king by the way uh, that they're excavating in Jerusalem right now you knew that right city of David excavations they're doing right now 
and they found a big layer of soot over it. All the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. Now, who are the great houses belong to? The elites, okay. Joe Schmo Farmer out in Podunk is not getting his house burned, okay? And the archaeology supports that. The captain of the guard carried into exile the rest of the people. Uh, sounds like everybody got taken. The captain of the guard left some of the poorest people of the land to be vine dressers, tillers of the soil. We don't want to disrupt the tax base. We want to preserve its integrity. So Judah went into exile out of its land. Now, we're lucky because Jeremiah actually witnessed these things in Jerusalem. He was living in Jerusalem. He was advising the king, do not rebel against Babylon. For this, remember they threw him in a well, tried to kill him on several occasions. He was real popular for doing this. You know, uh, when, when, when the patriotism is running really, really high, that voice that speaks up, the dissident voice, is generally not well received. This is Jeremiah. Jeremiah 34. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah, in Jerusalem when the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem. So during that two-year period. Uh, and against all the cities of Judah that were left. Now this gets really interesting. Lachish and Azekah. Lachish and Azekah are suburbs of Jerusalem. They're just a few miles out. The, the amount of distance here is from the ocean you can see the lights of Jerusalem. Okay. From Amman, Jordan, you can see the lights of Jerusalem. From Damascus, Syria, you can see the lights of Jerusalem at night. So these distances are just not that great. For these were the only fortified cities of Judah that remain. It's interesting. This is where archaeology really kicks in. We have actually found in another of the cities archaeological records of people who actually watched these cities fall. Uh, you have your pottery shards. In the ancient world, this was actually what you call scrap paper. So you would write kind of things on it. The soldiers who are in this city are actually writing down kind of their observations. Uh, so these are the pottery shards from Ascalon. They are actually uh, at Ascalon, which is on the, the border of the, the ocean. They're looking over towards Jerusalem, and they can see Azekah on the left and Lachish on the right. May my lord know, writing to whoever the king or whoever is in charge of them, that we are watching for the fire signals of Lachish. And we can no longer see the signals of Azekah. You get that image? Azekah, they know, is gone. Lachish, they fear, is gone. So this is right before the end. In Jerusalem, the archaeological evidence fits the biblical description. Uh, all over Jerusalem, when they dig down to this level, this is what they find. What do you see in black? Ash. What's the whitish stuff? Babylonian arrowheads, they can tell by the shape. So the entire city of Jerusalem, if you dig down to a certain level, all you find is ash and arrowheads, which, which tells its own story. Um, second attack, 586, is far more devastating than the earlier one. Because in the earlier one, we're talking about probably less than 1% of the people are actually affected. They just decapitate the leadership. Everybody else kind of goes on with their life. Here, the nation ends. The towns around Jerusalem... Lachish, Azekah, are destroyed. Uh, the city of Jerusalem is destroyed. Solomon's temple is destroyed. Everything that made Judah what it was and gave it its identity comes to an end. Uh, and even though Second Kings said they deported everybody, we're, we're, we get that little note that, uh, that there are these tillers of the soil who are still there. So the common people are still there. There's, well, there's a the deal called the myth of the empty land. 
And the myth is that during the Babylonian exile, everybody got carted away. And what would be, what would be left in, in, in Judah? Nothing. Empty land. It's not true. We know that from archaeology. Uh, but it's one of the things that we'll look at because the myth of the empty land is very important when we get to uh, Ezra and Nehemiah into those books. Uh, this time, an even smaller number is taken into exile, uh, probably because a lot of them are going to die on the walls defending the city. And you take a two-year siege, and that's going to whittle down your population considerably. So a lot more people die, a lot fewer taken. Jeremiah lets us know that uh, his number is only 800 are taken. Now, who would these 800 be? Again, it's the people surrounding the king who led the rebellion, participated in the rebellion. So, again, he's going to decapitate. Uh, those We're told that those who remain are the poor of the land. Uh, the Babylonians are always going to leave the tax structure. Uh, we have a con confirmation of this both second kings three times and the book of Jeremiah four times mentions that the people of the land, the tillers of the soil, the vine dressers, that those are the people that are left behind. They're not taken. Uh, and of course, the archaeology. What's interesting about the archaeology, uh, Israel is the most excavated place on the planet. Okay? You can't go anywhere that they haven't excavated. What, what they know from the excavations is this. There are no signs of anything being burned over about eight miles from Jerusalem during this century. Nothing. Why? Why didn't they burn Galilee and Samaria? There's, that's not where the rebellion is. And that's where your tax base is. They also know that the population actually increases in the Judean hill country, Samaria, and Galilee. Who would those people be? And they're Jews. They know from the, ar the archaeology they're Jews. Where are all these Jews coming from? Well, if you lived in Jerusalem and you knew the Babylonian army was coming, <laughs> where would you go? Anywhere but Jerusalem. That's what happened. So large numbers of people flee, including, by the way, some of the elites who do not support this rebellion. So the archaeology shows that destruction is limited to Jerusalem and the immediate area around it. Uh, it is the center of the rebellion. The other places, northeast, south, and west, are not touched. Uh, so essentially, a lot stays in, in place. Uh, final blow comes six years later. This is the one that's not as well known. The year is 582. Uh, Jedediah is the Babylonian governor. We do not know if he's a Jew or a Babylonian, but we know he's been appointed not as a king. Uh, the Babylonians are going to have no more of that, but they've appointed somebody to rule on their behalf. Uh, he's assassinated by a member of the royal family of David. Now, what would that be about? If you're a member of the royal family of David and you're still in Jerusalem, what do you want to be? You want to be king. You got somebody in your way. What are you going to do in the ancient world? You're going to take care of that, okay? So 2 Kings 25. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, appointed Jedaliah as governor uh, over the people who remained in the land of Judah. So here again, people remain in the land of Judah. It's not empty. But in the seventh month, Ishmael, it's a good, good name, of the royal family, came with ten men. They struck down Jedaliah so that he died along with the Judeans and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mitzpah. And Mitzpah is eight miles north of Jerusalem. So who are the people that he just killed? Killed the governor. Who are these Judeans? Collaborators. Collaborating with the Babylonian Empire. 
running things. And by the way, there are more collaborators. And when the Jews come back from the exile, guess who they don't like? The collaborators who are called the people of the land. Then all the people high and low, the captains and the forces set out and went to Egypt. They know what's coming. We just assassinated the Babylonian governor. Where is the safest place to be? Anywhere but here, right? So they go to Egypt. Egypt's going to uh, protect them because they're afraid of the Chaldeans. Now, Jeremiah is an interesting character. He survives 597, and he survives 586, probably because he is supportive, or at least he's against, rebelling against Babylon. He thinks it's a really bad idea, and he says that God says don't do it. Uh, I think history kind of bore him out. But in 582, Jeremiah's luck finally runs out. Not by the Babylonians, his own people, who think that he's a collaborator with Babylon, okay? So, the last we hear of uh, Jeremiah is that the assassins cart him off to Egypt with them. And there's a couple of stories there. About he, he lives out the rest of his life there, but there's a couple of stories of him in Egypt. And the last thing, basically, he says to them is, is the future does not lie with you. The future will lie somewhere else with Babylon. Jeremiah 43. Those who killed Jedaliah took all the remnant of Judah. And again, sounds like they've all left again, but we know they haven't. As well as the prophet Jeremiah, and they came to the land of Egypt. Now, from this nucleus will come the, uh, we know about the diaspora, the Jews spread it. Okay. By the time of Jesus, there are no less than two million Jews in Alexandria, Egypt when there's only about 300,000 in the land of Israel. So this group forms a nucleus, and it will continue to grow. People immigrate there. They have children. It becomes, and the other really, really big one is, of course, in Babylon. With the destruction, you close the books on the history of Israel. Israel is no more. It's gone. And everything that had made Israel what it was, political independence, sovereignty, having a king, having a temple, having all those kinds of things, all that comes to an end. But something even greater is about to be born. It's going to rise like a phoenix out of the ashes. For the Judeans, the destruction is an end, but it is actually a beginning, the end of the, the kingdom that they had it, but it's the founding of something that we today call Judaism. Uh, Judaism begins with the destruction. It's going to be formed in the exile. And then when they return, it's going to begin to take shape. So during this exile, the faith of Israel is going to be fundamentally transformed. I did not really realize this until doing the reading, but absolutely fundamentally transformed. Who the Jews understood themselves to be God, as God's people and what they understood God wanted them to do to be obedient and faithful. Night and day. Night and day. Before and after. How they understood God. One example. Before the exile, they referred to God as the God of Israel. You've heard that term. Okay. After the exile, they no longer use that language. God is the Lord of heaven and earth. Is there a difference? Okay. The way they worship. Before the exile, they worship by killing something. Sacrifice. They come back, they've got this new thing called Torah. And they're reading Torah. And they're interpreting in Torah. And according to the book of Nehemiah, they have a new form of worship based on the reading and interpretation of the word. They'll rebuild the temple, but does Torah go away? 
No, it stays side by side. So when the second temple is destroyed, what do they still have? Torah and what we would today call Judaism. Hope. Prior to the exile, there's no belief in life after death. After the exile, there is belief in life after death. Before the ex exile, there's no expectation of a, a Messiah because Messiah means anointed, a king's anointed. As long as you've got a king sitting on the throne, do you need to have hope of a king? Now, you might want a better one, <laughs> but you don't need messianic hope. Afterwards, when there is no king on the throne of Israel, what do we begin, begin to see? The hope for a Messiah who may be thought of as priestly or a military or political or eschatological, all kinds of images. And then into this, of course, Jesus steps into this world. Um, from this point on, they're no longer Israelites. They have a new identity. They're going to be Jews. They're going to have a new faith. It is the faith called Judaism. So what emerges is different. The exile is the crucible. The destruction closes a door. The exile opens the door. So next week, we want to look at the part the Bible skips. Interesting. Kings ends with the destruction. Ezra and Nehemiah opens 70 years later. And the Bible has nothing. Well, the history has nothing. There's actually a lot there. The Anchor Bible Dictionary. Some of y'all know the Anchor Bible Dictionary? Seven volumes this big. The definitive resource on the planet. If you want the definitive article about any topic written biblically, you want to go to the Anchor Bible Dictionary. There is not an article on the exile. Does that shock you? Because the Bible itself skips the exile. Except the Bible is full of stuff. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept because of our captors. You know, the book of Lamentations. Oh, Jeremiah keeps writing. Ezekiel is writing. Uh, Haggai and Zechariah are writing. Malachi is writing. Zephaniah is writing. Nahum is writing. Psalms are being written. Proverbs are being written. Babylonian records. Persian records. So we can fill in the gap. It's just the historical narrative jumps. We're going to take a shorter jump and just land right in the middle of it next week, okay? <laughs> Should be fun. So would you stand and we sing together hymn 130? God will take care of you. And look at the clock. Time to spare. <laughs>